0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Major at Podcast. Today, we are joined by Bob Wright, founding partner of Marketing Arts and Firebrick Consulting. Today, we will be covering three main areas. How did COVID impact the prioritization of messaging and positioning? Some examples of how great positioning impacts revenue performance, and the metrics that are impacted most by relevant and differentiated positioning and messaging. Bob, please take a moment to give our audience a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast.
1: Ray, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I love talking about positioning. So this is right up my power alley. I'm a partner, as you mentioned, at Firebrick. We're a very specialized consulting firm that specializes in B2B tech, and our core competency is positioning. So I'm going to share with you my experience of positioning probably over 400 different B2B tech companies and products. We've got a process or methodology that we've developed just doing this very narrow expertise over and over again. And specifically, companies come to us when they're ready to scale up. We've got a lot of experience with new categories. And everybody comes to us when they want to move out of features and functions and have an executive level conversation.
0: I'm really interested in taking more upon this, but I'm sure you didn't come out of your undergraduate degree saying I'm going to be a messaging and positioning kind of thought leader. How did you actually transition into this kind of thought leadership role for B2B tech companies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I actually came out of college, fortunate enough, selling computers right out of college. So before B2B tech was even a thing, I was in the tech industry. I was in sales and then quickly found out that my talent was really in marketing. So I had product marketing roles, corporate marketing roles, industry marketing roles. And what I got really good at doing at these software companies is launch new products. So I didn't care so much about the features and functions and the MRDs and all that sort of thing. So I created this thing called launch marketing. When the product's ready, give it to me and I'll go pop it because of my sales background. You know, I could really pop the revenue of a new product. I built a launch methodology or process, and I began launching our company's products. And then after a while, I thought, hmm, maybe I should go out on my own. And I decided to become a launch consultant. So I had a methodology or process that I had built, and I started doing launches for different tech companies, PeopleSoft, et cetera, et cetera. And back in the day, what happened is every time I did a launch, the messaging always sucks. So I quickly pivoted and just got really, really good at messaging. That was a craft. And I built a craft out after doing positioning. And so I haven't had a real job in a long time. And that's really how I got into what I do. I call it a craft, the craft of positioning. And there's some very specialized expertise.
0: Well, let me double click on that a little bit because you would think the experts on their solution, their target market, their value proposition would be internal to an organization. What do you as an outside consultant add to that process?
1: I get that asked a lot by CEOs. Hey, I just hired this very, very expensive CMO. Isn't this their job? And first thing I always say is, well, you can hire the very best CMOs, but no CMO you can hire has ever done positioning 400 times. And so if you need the absolute best possible, you know, if you're a CMO, you might have done maybe once or twice a year, maybe. So nobody's done it 400 times. So positioning is really, really important. Why not get specialized expertise to do it? Secondly, the role of the CMO is so huge right now. You can't be deep experts in everything. Again, positioning being a very specialized expertise. But I think the real value is a process. We take companies through a process. And I always say to the CEO, this is your initiative. It's run by marketing, but it's a CEO initiative. You're taking your company through a positioning process. What happens is if you're working for a company for a while, after a while, you just can't see it anymore because you're too close to it. We give an outside perspective and a fresh perspective. If you're looking to wake up the market with a fresh viewpoint, some new language and a new way of looking at it, that's very, very hard to do inside. The second reason you hire somebody from the outside is you got to get it done. If you're trying to do this internally, they'll drag on and on and on. We run this process through the company, get it done in six to eight weeks. So there's a speed question with it too. But I think fundamentally, what most companies come to us is because what they want to do is they want to run a cross-company process or initiative, and they want to get a fresh thinking and a fresh viewpoint. And also have somebody from the outside call them on their BS. Oh, that doesn't make any sense or this. And drive alignment across the company around a singular positioning. And a lot of times, driving alignment is very difficult to do internally if you're an internal member of the executive team.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because there's a lot of discussion out there in the digital world about sales and marketing alignment. And often it's created by friction, whether it's the lead opportunity handoff or who are they targeting? Are they generating qualified leads? How do you ensure there's good alignment between marketing and sales while you're doing messaging and positioning engagements?
1: Yeah, that's why I always say positioning really is a cross-company initiative. Typically, we're either brought in by the CEO, the board, or a CMO. And what's critical to the success of our process and positioning is you have to have cross-company involvement. And that means sales involvement. When we do positioning, I am insane about revenue growth and sales. What can positioning do to help move the needle? The sales executives, the sales team has to be involved in those conversations, and they have to be involved in the development of the positioning, or it won't be adopted or simply don't work. So not only do we in our process, a lot of times I'll say, hey, can we get the top SC that's been in tons of deals? Can we bring them into the process? Uh, Give me your top sales rep, right? Or two, why don't we bring them into the process in addition to the executives? So we really want to have sales have a very, very strong voice. And again, a lot of these initiatives are run by marketing, but I want not only marketing folks in there. I want somebody that owns the revenue number. I want the product people in there as well, because they completely different viewpoint. And I want the service organization there as well. But part of the positioning process is to drive alignment and close that gap, frankly, between marketing and sales.
0: You know, Bob, I've been in a lot of conference rooms where everyone's talking about what the buyer wants, what the buyer journey is. How do you integrate the voice of the customer in your messaging and positioning programs?
1: Well, that's what it all comes down to. Right, Ray? As you know, from being a very successful revenue and sales and CEO executive, it's all about the buyer, right? Frankly, no buyer wants another tech vendor, right? So we switch the conversation from a product-centric conversation to a buyer-centric conversation, switching it from features and functions about how it works to a buyer conversation about why you matter. And to do that, you really have to have a good understanding of your buyer. For us, that comes to a couple of places. Number one, we always want to talk to the top sales reps and SEs. I have them walk me through your last three top deals that if you could sell, you'd be wildly successful. Who is the executive buyer? Who are the influencers? Where did the money come from? What was the trigger event? right? Why did you win? And I also want to look at the losses as well. In addition to that, which is so fascinating, we always interview customers up front. I always want to talk, give me five to seven of your customers. And what I'm interested in is where's the next set of revenue going to come from? And what do those buyers look like? Not who you sold five years ago, but what do those buyers look like today and in the future? We want to position to that next set of buyers. So I'll ask, give me some archetypal customers of yours that look like that next set of buyers and we'll go talk to them. And being an independent, a lot of times they're pretty free to talk about their opinions and I don't have happy ears. So we can do a real deep dive again into their motivations, what makes them a hero, was the problem they were solving. We listened to their language. So that's the upfront part of incorporating the buyer into the center of the process and the positioning. The other thing we do a lot of times is we do validation. What we'll do is we work with a market research firm and we'll go and actually recruit prospects of your target buyer that aren't your customers. And we'll actually, once we've done the positioning story and we think it's in pretty good shape, we'll run it by those target buyers and customers. And that's the best way to do it because then you find out, you know, if the story really, really is working. So It's always helpful to work on that kind of data and those qualitative and quantitative type of buyer research and not just on opinions when you're building strong positioning.
0: Well, buyer motivations do change over time. And I know when COVID hit last year, I did some research about 45 days after the initial kind of work from home trend started and over 90% of SaaS and cloud companies said that they had refined their messaging and positioning within the first 60 to 90 days. They even had refined their ideal customer profile sometimes. Are there any common themes or trends you've seen in how messaging and positioning has shifted since March 2020?
1: Oh, it's all totally, completely different. You cannot be a nice to have anymore. You've got to be a gotta have, number one. So what's happened is you're seeing a lot of positioning happen from companies that are perceived nice to have, right, and switching to got to have. But the other thing that's really fundamentally changing, there's been acceleration of obviously digital, there's been a shift in business models and our buyers and consumer buyer behavior and employee behavior is completely different. What's really, really interesting, I find, is every significant inflection point gives rise to a new set of technology vendors. We saw that in 2000, we saw that in 2008, and we got an opportunity right now. So what's happening is this is an opening, if you will. This new business inflection point is an opening for new tech vendors to come and usurp and take a leadership position. Likewise, the big guys are trying to defend their turf because the ground is shifting underneath. I always say the success of the past is now irrelevant. The question is, how do you shape a new future? And so I see this, everything has changed. I mean, the buyer's motivations, I think what they're spending their money on. I also believe the sense of urgency and the sense of non-urgency is so critical. So, what happens to us is nobody was talking to me in March and April, and all of a sudden, we have a flurry of companies, every tech vendor rose their hand and said, no, I need a new story because they had to be relevant for these times. And they need a story that's relevant for these times. So it required a pivot on their perspective. And, you know, for example, we work with one client in the CX business, right? CX is a nice to have, not a gotta have, right? Surveys, all that kind of baloney. Well, how do you make the CX executive or buyer a hero in these times, right? Can you build a case that as your buyer and employee behavior fundamentally has changed, you've got to get a grassroots tab on the pulse of your employees and buyers. And CX is the perfect way to do it. So again, what's being called for right now is as a tech company, what is your relevancy in this new business inflection point?
0: Yeah, one of the things that we also saw was because companies really weren't sure of their top line revenue impact of the pandemic. In fact, overall, we saw SaaS companies had to reduce their new customer acquisition ARR by about 30% from the business plan they had built in January 2020 to what they ended up with December 2020. Are you seeing the need for different messaging positioning that speaks to the financial buyer, the CFO? Is that becoming more important now or not?
1: I think it always is, particularly there's more scrutiny around budgets, right? But, you know, it's really interesting, you know, before it was all a land grab, right? Land and then expand. And just as your research pointed out, we're seeing right now there's been a shift to an expand and then land, right? Can you expand the existing cash you have right now and focus on that to drive some revenue growth? And then, of course, new business acquisition. The other thing that I find fascinating that's been coming up is really SaaS companies now really have to run three separate businesses. There's the new business revenue business. There is the expansion upsell business, the CLV business, so to speak. And then there's the recurring revenue business. And those are three completely different selling motions and often require completely different types of spins on the positioning, so to speak.
0: Now, that's really intriguing. I never really thought about that. So since expansion, upsells and cross-sells has become much more important over the last 12 months, and it's going to continue because of the new product-led kind of customer acquisition models, you do unique messaging and positioning for existing customers to engage them for the expansion component?
1: It's a different spin. Right. You want the same consistent message, whether it's new business or existing customers, but it's a spin. The way to do the positioning right is you have to lay the groundwork right up front for the expansion motion. So a lot of times for our clients, we'll build a journey for their story, right? Stage one, two, three, four, and five. The land is, we'll get you to from stage one to stage two, you're in stage one, which is hell, we'll quickly get to stage two, but quickly set up the expansion right up front. And then when you do the spin to the installed base and even the recurring revenue, right? It's a spin on that story, but again, it's a different reflection on it or a different lens on it. But you try to keep the story consistent, but the spin and what's being emphasized is a little different.
0: You know, Bob, this is the metrics that measure a podcast. So what are some of the most common performance metrics or key performance indicators that companies have identified we really need to reconsider our messaging positioning are there common ones?
1: Yeah. What drove me crazy when I was in marketing? It seemed like a lot of marketing folks were all about activity, but not actually moving the needle. (laughs) So positioning absolutely has to be connected to metrics. And we set up very specific metrics with our clients every time we do an engagement. Once we've finished engagement, we actually come back in two quarters later and do a positioning review and we measure against those metrics. There's really two categories of metrics I look like. From a short-term revenue perspective, I look at things like Can we collapse the length of your sales cycle? Can we improve your win-loss ratio? Can we command a larger average selling price? Can I drive higher CLV? Those are specific metrics from a sales perspective. The other category of metrics around the category, and that takes a little bit longer, it's a longer lead time, but are the market analysts starting to pick up your language and your viewpoint? You know, Are you moving to the upper right hand in the quadrant, so to speak? Valuation, huge impact. I had one client of ours where they went from a $200 million valuation to a $700 million valuation and nothing changed about the product. They just had a better story that could command a bigger valuation. Now, of course, they had the numbers to back it up as well. So the bottom line is positioning is measurable. It can make a big impact on sales cycles and revenue growth and can make a big impact on valuation and category leadership and domination.
0: Well, one of the pitfalls I've seen with messaging and positioning is who are we actually targeting the message to? Is it the target buyer or is it to the analyst and influencer community? Is it a different packaging or spend based upon who you're talking to, Bob, or is it almost always for that potential customer market?
1: Well, I always focus on the buyer because that's where the revenue and ultimately all success is going to come from, you know, is a position that really resonates with your buyer and particularly an executive buyer that has budget right? That can unhook some, you know, multi-million dollar budgets, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. It's really interesting. We've been working with a lot of companies that do this viral kind of, you know, e-commerce, right? Download type of thing. And there's a fundamental shift they have to do from positioning to the user of the product to an executive, right? That actually has some money. We're working with a company right now that's doing that exact motion, wildly successful, viral. Everybody's picking up with a credit card, right? Their software. Now they're moving to the enterprise, but they're so used to positioning to the user. It's like, no, no, no. We're positioned to somebody who's got some money and that's a different positioning. So once we position to the buyer, we usually build a long story for our clients and then a short version that's the sales deck. The long version is the larger conversation. You typically take the market analyst, right? It talks about the market dynamics and the category and all that kind of thing. And then the shorter version of that is actually used to engage in sales cycles. They're both the same story. It really depends on the elevation and where you start in the story. Typically, the marketing analyst, it's a bigger picture conversation. Typically, in sales cycle, you start with a buyer problem.
0: Bob, one of the things that I experienced when I was still in an operating role is we'd work very hard on messaging and positioning, but then we needed to make sure that all our organizations could consistently communicate that. And it wasn't just a sales organization. It was also our services and customer success. Do you have any best practices on how a company can really amplify that message and positioning to everyone in the company?
1: Yeah, I think it's really, really important. It's just not in coming up with a good message and good positioning, strategy, and storyline. But how do you operationalize it? And that's where a lot of companies, frankly, fall down. I think first off, what's really, really important is when you develop the position that it's a cross-company initiative, because you've got buy-in across the organization, the leadership across the organization, service organization, the product organization, the sales organization, a CEO, COO, and of course, marketing. Once that's in place, now we got the leadership that's bought into the story, and they can be the rallying cry, if you will, for the story. There needs to be a formal operational rollout plan, if you will, to multiple audiences of that story. It's a formal launch. So I always start internally. First, we need to roll it out to our employees. That includes making sure that all employees really understand the story and they have the message cards. just three messages you're delivering. Here's why it's really important. And there's continual reinforcement that. Then you got to enable the field sales organization. That usually takes a certification process and you know a little more. And then I also think you should enable the service organization as well. And that's a different kind of enablement. But what's really important is to get everybody on the same page, aligned around a single message, around a single positioning strategy. And leadership has to set that guidance and that has to be disciplined And it has to be relentless. I always tell the executives when we're working with them and these stories, I say, when you're finally sick of giving this story, that's finally when everybody's going to start understanding it. (laughs) You know, it takes that long. Again, I always start with employees. Then I go to my key customers, right? That I'm using in references. I want to say, hey, We've been thinking about what we're doing with your company. This is what we think we're doing for you. Here's our new story. So they're going to reinforce it in your reference calls. Then you start seeding the market analysts and financial analysts. Then finally, you may roll it out with public announcements, wrap it around with a financing event or even, you know, a release event, if you will, to publicly unveil the new positioning. But it doesn't start then. It's almost like relentless, consistent, disciplined echoing of the positioning and has to start from the top. And the executives have to understand that this is so important. We stay on message and they have to reinforce it consistently. Then it can permeate through the organization.
0: You know, Bob, I've been told many, many times that there's real power to storytelling. Can you tell a story about a client over the last few years that you were like, this is a poster child for how you should roll out a new messaging and positioning platform and kind of what was the results?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I've got one client, you know, new category client, Martech Stack. And what they do is they basically, you know, how marketing has like 64 data sources, you got to put together to run campaigns and run all their digital marketing, right? And those data sources are growing and growing and growing. It's becoming a huge problem. And companies have to go through this whole ETL transformation process of transforming all that data, right? So they can actually operationalize it and activate it. Well, this company has some secret sauce they develop that really does that transformation in like hours versus weeks. And it doesn't require an IT organization to do it. But again, they had a hard time articulating what they were all about. And we came up with a concept about business-ready data. You've got to get your data into business-ready data. And you have to have your marketing people be able to do that. And you have to have IT governance over it, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So that's what the rallying cry became. Business-ready data, right? And the promise of digital marketing cannot be fulfilled unless you have all these data sources in business-ready data. That company, they were doing average selling price of a deal was 30,000 a deal in 12 months. They hopped up to 70,000 a deal. And another 12 months, they had signed 18, $1 million deals and their valuation. Of course, they went up to a $2 billion valuation, but anyway, it's real success story around that rallying cry. But again, it was just a more clear, bigger picture way to articulate what they did. So that's just one example of a company that had some really cool technology. But again, a story can bring it to life in a way that people can consume and understand. And it's connected to a real urgent business problem for their entire buyer.
0: That's a pretty amazing story. Just around the business ready data, it sounds like they took them from a product, more technical orientation to a business conversation with either the CMO or the CEO.
1: That's right. That's what it's always about. How do we take your features and functions connected to a business problem your buyers really care about, right? And how do you make them a hero?
0: Let's look at the flip side, because you've done 400 of these. I'm sure they all haven't had the same results. Are there any common themes where you'd say, boy, we did what I think was great messaging and positioning work, but it really didn't translate into increased business performance? And what was a common theme around those?
1: Yeah, I think number one, if it's a marketing exercise, it's not going to work. It has to be a cross-company initiative, and the CEO has to own it. Marketing can run it but the CEO has to own it. And CRO, right, revenue, sales have to be involved in the process. That's number one. Number two, where it fails is drinking your own Kool-Aid. We're going to differentiate on these three things. Well, they're not really differentiated. We just think they are, right? So there's an opinion that perhaps is incorrect. The third thing I see always breaks down is blah, blah, blah. Companies fall back on the same old boring words, agility, agility scalable. We've seen it collaborative, easy to use, modern, you know, flexible. None of these words mean anything anymore. And if you look at all the B2B cophony of all the B2B tech messages out there, they're all So many are boring, they don't mean anything, they're product centric conversations about the features and functions about the companies, and frankly, nobody cares. So I think the three things are is it has to be a cross company initiative, you've got to have this thing really, really connected to your clear differentiations and make sure that those are really, really validated. And then the third thing is you've got to use some different fresh language to wake the market up.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you, the other thing you said, which I think is critical to long-term success that everyone realizes is those two follow-ups you do, one after a few months, one after six months to see, are the dogs eating the dog food? Has there really been business impact? I think that's a wonderful follow-up that you guys do.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We're actually going to be rolling this out. Usually we're at a six to eight week sprint with a client, get the positioning, hand off the assets and come back a couple quarters later and do a positioning review. We've been being asked by a lot of our clients to stick around for a year and do faster reviews now because the market's changing so quickly right now because the customer behavior is really fundamentally different. So what we're doing right now is we're going to put together on the back end of our engagements, an advisory service where we come in and make sure their activation plan is all solid. We'll help them train the trainer in sales enablement. And then we'll do faster, you know, it's quarterly reviews of the positioning just to make sure that it's continually adjusted because it's changing so quickly right now.
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about the speed of the industry. In fact, your competitors kind of follow you in three to six months. So you may also need to kind of refine the messaging and position a little bit if your competitors are mimicking it or no, do you stick with it?
1: Well, the way we always do positioning, we assume if you do it really, really well, your competition is going to copy you. And that's the good news, frankly, because if you do it right, you'll set them up and you'll own the buying criteria. I always tell my clients that the buying criteria is based upon these three things you would win every time. What would those three things be? That's what we're going to make the fight about. And if you set the differentiation up right, that you assume your competition is going to copy you, then they're playing on your buying criteria and your win loss ratio goes significantly up. But then you have to actually have what's the next conversation you're going to have and reset the bar again.
0: So Bob, let's transition to wrapping up our conversation for today because I could go on all day long, but let's have the listening audience get to know you a little bit better and take advantage of a lot of your experience. And the first question is, which CEO or company do you think is a must follow in 2021?
1: Oh my God, there's just so many out there right now. They're doing some really interesting things. We got a couple of clients that are really, really interesting. I think first one is Calendly, right? They're just taking off. Again, one of those viral companies now moved to the enterprise, but that's definitely a company to watch. Another one of our clients is GitLab. They're disrupting the DevOps market. When we started working with them, they were under 10 million. Now they got a six billion dollar valuation of some crazy thing like that. But they're really disrupting that whole DevOps market. And they have a really unique way, open source way of rapidly adding new features to their entire DevOps platform. Another company that's really interesting is called Paddle. They're in London and they do something called revenue delivery infrastructure. So if you're a SaaS company and you got billing and invoice and you know all that stuff, you got like five or six of those functions to take care of all that. They automate all that. So I think they're Really hot company. They're really doing some interesting thing. And the last one also is in London. It's a research firm called Street Bees. It's really disrupting that old research community, if you will, some really interesting AI technology. And then finally, Viz.ai. They're in the health tech and they're doing some really interesting things where they're taking AI to help providers, hospitals more quickly detect heart stroke. And then they're taking this AI capability across the entire coordination of care spectrum to a lot of other different specialties as well. So those are just some of the interesting companies that I have experience with that seem to be doing something new and interesting and are being really rewarded by good valuations and revenue growth.
0: Well, calendarly, which you mentioned first, right? I think they just raised $350 million in January at a $3 billion market cap. And they are a product-led growth, individual users. And you're saying that their enterprise business is really going to be a significant growth engine, right?
1: Yeah, it's like any of those product-led businesses, right? First off, it's really hard to do that, right? Get traction virally through just downloading, running a card or whatever. But at some point, you've got to move to the enterprise. And all SaaS companies do that. They all at some point move to the enterprise. Well, that's a really different selling motion. So the opportunity for them is now take a typical company. You might have a team that has three or four people that are using Calendly. Well, you have to have a conversation to go to the VP of that function or the director of that function of that team and say, look, Why don't you put your other 50 people on Calendly and just make it a standard? Then the opportunity is to go to the IT department and say, You got a thousand people in this company using this. Why don't we work on an enterprise license for this thing to significantly up level the revenue growth and the average selling price of that whole thing?
0: Second question is Is there a tool that you just couldn't live without and you'd recommend every company to look at using?
1: You know, if you're a SaaS company, I think I'd look at Paddle. Again, that's that revenue infrastructure platform. I think that's going to be the future, right? How do you run that recurring revenue business? And it's fascinating, Ray. What we're seeing now is more and more companies have a blended selling model, right? So you got an enterprise sale team, you got kind of an SDR inside sales team, so to speak. And then you got a download digital commerce business, if you will. And then you add in that the recurring revenue business, right? And the expansion business. Oh, my goodness. But they do a lot of the infrastructure behind all that revenue. And that's a tool that every SaaS company should probably use. It's called Paddle.
0: Paddle. Okay. And my last question for you. What advice would you give that recent college graduate or early career professional that says, Well, I just heard Bob Wright talk about messaging positioning. I want to be him when I grow up. What advice would you give him?
1: What advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Well, I think there's a couple of things. If I was coming right out of college, I would probably suggest going. First off, B2B Tech's an awesome place to be. I would probably go with a larger company that's set up to professionally train people coming right out of college and also get you networked with a whole bunch of people You can do that in a larger company, and it's a great way to start. But I think there's a couple of things. First off, never settle. If it doesn't feel right, if a job doesn't feel right or whatever, just move on. And also, don't take things so personal. It's really usually not about you. I got fired from a job at one time, and I took that so personal. It wasn't about me. I was in the wrong job, right? And I'm friends with a guy now that fired me, right? Thank goodness he fired me. I would never be where I am today. And the other thing is, can you build a craft? Is there something that you do really, really well? And I remember somebody once told me, because I was in sales, you know, and they said, oh, you can't make any money in marketing. And I said, you know what? Marketing's just how I see things and how I feel. I'm going to go to marketing whether I make any money or not. And It's the best thing I ever did. I followed my heart to marketing and then I found my way to the craft of positioning. And so I think building a craft is important, but also listening to yourself and not so much following the money, right? But trusting yourself and just don't settle. If it doesn't feel right, move on until you find it.
0: Well, I think that's great advice. We're going to wrap up on this episode of the Metrics of Measure Up podcast. And for our listening audience, if you enjoyed today's conversation, love the caliber of our guests, the quality of the content, it would mean the world to us if you would go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics of Measure Up podcast and go ahead and take a minute and rate how we're doing. And any comments you have, we would greatly appreciate it. Bob, thank you for being a guest today.
1: Ray, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And you're such a good man. So so happy to be part of this. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.